Many people believe that we are living in the most peaceful period of human history. John Lewis Candace proclaimed the long peace period since the end of the Second World War. Stephen Pinker further popularized the idea in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and explained the period by pointing to the pacifying forces of trade, democracy, and international society. This first graph shows the percentage of time where great powers were at war. 500 years ago, the great powers were almost always fighting each other. Then, the frequency declined steadily. This graph shows the deadliness of war, which shows a trend that goes into the opposite direction. Although the great powers' wars were fewer in number, they were more damaging. But the trend did an about phase after the Second World War. For the first time in modern human history, great power conflicts were fewer in number, shorter in duration, and less deadly. And Stephen Pinker expects the trend to continue. Now, not everyone agrees with this optimistic picture. Nassim Talib believes that great power conflict in a scale of you know, 10 million casualties only happens every century. Now, the long peace period only covers 70 years. So what appears to be a decline in violent conflict could merely be a gap between major wars. In his paper on the statistical properties and terror risk of violent conflict, he concludes that no statistical trend can be asserted. The idea is that extrapolating on the basis of historical data assumes that there is no qualitative change to the nature of the system, whereas many people believe that nuclear weapons constitute such a change to the data-generating process. Some experts seem to share a more sober picture. In 2015, there was a poll done among 50 international relations experts from around the world. 60% of them believe that risk has increased in the last decade. 52% believe that nuclear grid power conflict was further increased in the next 10 years. Overall, they give a median 5% chance of a nuclear grid power conflict killing at least 18 million people in the next 20 years. And then there are some international relations theories which suggest a lower bound of risk. The book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, proposed a theory of offensive realism. This theory says that great powers would always seek to achieve regional hegemony, maximize wealth, and achieve nuclear superiority. And through this process, great power conflicts will never see an end. And then another book, The Clash of Civilizations, suggests that the conflict between ideologies during the Cold War era is now being replaced by conflict between Asian civilizations. In the 21st century, the rise of non-Western societies presents possible scenarios of conflict. And then there is some emerging discourse on the Thucydides trap, which points to the structural pattern of stress when a rising power challenges a ruling one. In analyzing the Peloponnesian War that devastated ancient Greece, the historian Thucydides explained that it was the rise of Athens and the fear that instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. Graham Ellison, in his recent book, That's Destined for War, pointed out that this lens is crucial for understanding China-U.S. relations in the 21st century. Okay, it seems that these perspectives suggest that we should be reasonably alert about potential risk of great power conflict. But how bad would these conflicts be? For the purpose of my talk, 
I first define contemporary great powers. They are US, UK, France, Russia, and China. These are the five countries that have permanent seats and fetal power on the UN Security Councils. They are also the only five countries that are formally recognized as nuclear weapon states. Collectively, they account for more than half of the global military spending. So we should expect that conflicts between great powers to be quite tragic. In the Second World War, 50 to 80 million people died during the war. By some models, these wars cost on the order of national GDPs and likely to be more, several times more expensive. And this also presents a direct extinction risk. At a Global Catastrophic Risk Conference hosted by University of Oxford, academics predicted that there is 1% chance of nuclear extinction risk in the 21st century. Climatic effects of nuclear wars are not very well understood, so nuclear winter presents a plausible scenario of extinction risk. Now, it's also important to take into account model uncertainty in any risk analysis. Now, one way to think about great power conflicts is that it is a risk factor in the same way that tobacco use is a risk factor in global burden of diseases. Tobacco use can lead to a wide range of scenarios of death, including lung cancer. Similarly, great power conflicts can lead to a wide range of different scenarios of extinctions. One example is nuclear winter and a subsequent mass starvation. Others are less obvious, which could arise due to a failure of global coordination. Here, let's consider the development of advanced AI as an example. Wars typically cause faster technological development, often enhanced by public investment. Countries become more willing to take risk in order to develop the technology first. One example was the development of nuclear weapons program by India after going to war with China in 1962. Repeating the same competitive dynamic in the area of advanced AI is likely to be catastrophic. Actors might trade off safety research and implementation in the process, and that might present an extension risk as discussed in the book Superintelligence. So now, how neglected is a problem? To analyze this dimension, I propose a framework to understand this. First, I make a distinction between broad versus specific interventions. By broad interventions, I roughly mean promoting international cooperation and peace, and this could be you know, improving diplomacy and conflict resolution. With specific interventions, there are two categories of conventional risk versus emerging risk. I define conventional risk by those that are studied by international relations experts and national security professionals. So, you know, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear risk, collectively known as CBRN uh, in the community. And then there are some novel concerns arising from emerging technologies, such as the development and deployment of geoengineering. Now, let's go back to the framework that I use to compare with global burden of diseases. Lower tobacco use can lead to an increased rate of smoking. Similarly, development of emerging technologies such as geoengineering can lead to greater conflict between great powers or lead to wars in the first place. Now, in the upcoming decades, I think that it's possible to see the following scenarios. 
private industry players are already setting their sights on space mining. Major spacefaring countries in the future may compete for developable resources on the moon and asteroids. Military applications of molecular nanotechnology could be even more destabilizing than nuclear weapons. Such technology will allow for targeted destruction during attack and also allow for greater uncertainty in the capabilities of an adversary. With geoengineering, every technologically advanced nation could change the temperature of the planet. Any unilateral action taken by countries could lead to disagreement and conflict between them. Gene editing would allow for large-scale eugenics program, which could lead to a bioethical panic in the rest of the world. Other countries might be worried about their national security interests because of the uneven distribution of human capital and power. Now, it seems that these emerging sources of risk are likely to be quite neglected. But what about broad interventions and you know, convention risk? It seems that political attention and resources have been devoted to the problem. There are anti-war and peace movements around the world advocating for diplomacy and the support of anti-war political candidates. There are also some academic disciplines such as international relations and security studies that are helpful for making progress on the issue. Governments also have the interest to maintain peace. The US government has tens of billions in their budget in nuclear security issues. And presumably, a fraction of it is dedicated to the safety, control, and detection of such risk. And then there are also some intergovernmental organizations that put aside funding for improving nuclear security. And one example is the International Atomic Energy Agency. Now, it seems plausible to me that there are still some neglected niche. In a report of nuclear weapons policy done by Open Philanthropy Project, it concludes that some of the biggest gaps in the space are outside of the US and US-based efficacy. In a report that comprehensively studied US-China relations and their check to diplomacy programs, the report concludes that some of the think tanks were actually constrained by a committed source of funding from foundations interested in the area. Since most of the research is done on behalf of governments and thus could be tied to national interests, it seems more useful to focus on public interest philanthropy and nonprofits. One example is the Stockholm International, International Peace Research Institute. With that perspective, it seems that the space could be more neglected than what it appears to be. Now, let's turn to assessment of solvability. This is the variable that I'm most uncertain about, so what I'm going to say is pretty speculative. By reviewing literature, it seems that there are some levers that could, you, that could be used to promote peace and reduce risk of great power conflicts. Let's begin with broad interventions. First, you can promote international dialogue and conflict resolution. A case study was that during the Cold War, five great powers, including Japan, Japan, uh, France, Germany, UK, and US decided that a state of peace is desirable. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, they basically resolved all the disputes on the United Nations and other international forums for discussions. However, one could argue that promoting dialogue is unlikely to be useful if there are no pre-alignment of interests. Another lever is promoting international trade. 
in the book Economic Interdependence and War, it suggests the theory of expectations in predicting whether increased trade could reduce risk of war. If state leaders have positive expectations about the future, then they would believe in the benefits of peace and see the high cost of war. However, if they fear economic decline and the potential loss to foreign trade and investment, then they might believe that war now is actually better than submission later. So it is probably mistaken to believe that promoting trade in general is robustly useful. One should only do it under specific circumstances. Within specific and conventional risk, it seems that work on international arms control may improve stability. Recently, the nonprofit international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons brought about a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. It was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. Recently, there's also a campaign to bring nuclear weapons off hair trigger alert. However, the campaign and the treaty have not been executed for that long, so the impact of these initiatives are yet to be seen. With emerging sources of risk, it seems that the space is heavily bottlenecked by underdefined and entangled research questions. So it's possible to make progress on this issue by just finding out you know, what are the most important questions in the space and what's the structure of the space like. Now, what are the implications for the effective altruism of community? Many people in the community believe that improving the long-term future of the civilization is one of the best ways to make a huge positive impact. Both Open Philanthropy Projects and ADSRs have expressed the view that reducing great power conflict and improving international peace could be a promising area to look into. Through the talk, I expressed my view through the following arguments. First, it seems that the idea of long peace is overly optimistic, as suggested by a diverse perspective of statistical analysis, expert forecasting, and international relations theories. Second, I have argued that great power conflicts can be understood as a risk factor that could lead to human extinction either directly, say through nuclear winter, or indirectly through a wide range of scenarios. Third, it seems that there are some neglected niche that arise from the development of novel emerging technologies. I gave examples of molecular nanotechnology, gene editing, space mining, and gene editing. Lastly, I've expressed significant uncertainty in the solvability of the issue. However, my best guess is that doing some disentanglement research is likely to be somewhat useful. Additionally, it seems that there are comparative advantage for the EA community to work on this problem. A lot of people in the community share a strong cosmopolitan values, which could be useful for fostering international collaboration rather than being attached to their national interests and national identities. The community can also bring in the culture of explicit prioritization and long-term perspective to the field. And then some people in the community are also familiar with concepts such as unilateralist curse, information hazard, and differential technological progress, which can be useful for analyzing emerging technologies and their associated risk. So all things considered, it seems to me that risk from great power conflicts can really be the causes that William McCaskill talks about. 
In this case, it wouldn't be a moral problem that we have not discovered. Instead, it would be something that we're aware of today, but for bad reasons, we deprioritized. Now, my main recommendation here is that a whole lot more research should be done, and this is just a small fraction of research questions. I hope this talk could serve as a starting point of more conversations and research on a topic. Thank you. Well, that's kind of scary. <laughs> uh, questions? We've got uh, a few minutes, actually probably, probably 10. So go ahead and fire them off through the Bizabo app. And again, the website, london.eaglobal.org slash polls. Uh, I guess just starting with kind of, well, I'll start with a question on your expertise. How much do you pay attention to current news, like 2018 versus the much zoomed out picture of you know, the century timeline that you showed? Yeah, so I don't think I pay that much attention to current news, but I also don't look at this problem just on a century timeline perspective. I guess from the presentation that I did, it would be something that is possible in the next two to three decades. I think that more research should be done on emerging technologies, um, but it seems you know, with space mining, with geoengineering, is something that is possible in the next you know, 10 to 15 years. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure whether paying attention to the everyday political um, trends would be the most effective use of the time of effective artists um, in terms of analyzing the long-term trends. Yeah. It seems also that a lot of the scenarios that you're talking about are remain risks even if the relationships between great powers are sort of superficially quite good. <laughs> Uh, because it's not, it seems to me, I mean, I'm just kind of spitballing from the first row here, but it seems like the majority of the risk is not even in direct hot conflict, but in sort of other things kind of gone wrong via rivalry and escalation. Is that how you see it as well? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the reason why I said that there is some, it seems like there is some neglected niche in the issue is that, most of the international relations experts and scholars are not paying attention to these emerging technologies. And these technologies could really change the structure and the incentive of the countries. So even if China-US relations appear to be, well, it is, a, it is a pretty bad example because now it's not going that well. But <laughs> suppose in a few years, uh, some international relations appear to be pretty positive, but the development of a powerful technologies could just change the dynamic so much that people just didn't see it. So one question from the audience is, and, and you put up kind of one example of this with the, the graphic that showed the causes of near misses in terms of like nuclear, uh, you know, for bad reasons, first strike. How is that the kind of uh, extent of the near misses literature or what other kind of near misses have people investigated in the past? I don't think I got the question around the first part of, of it. So I think, try to put it simpler, um, my fault. 
have there been a lot of near misses? We know about a few of the nuclear yeah. near misses. Have there been other kinds of near misses where great powers nearly entered into conflict but didn't? Yeah, I think one paper shows that there were almost 40 near misses. And I think that was put up by the Future of Life Institute. Um, so some people can look up to that paper. And I think that in general, it seems that experts agree some of the biggest risks from nuclear uh, would be accidental use rather than kind of deliberate and malicious use between countries. So that might be something that people should look into just on improving the detection systems and improving kind of the technical robustness of uh, the reporting uh, and so forth. So one person is asking, it seems like one fairly obvious career path that might come out of this analysis would be to go into the civil service and try to be a you know, good steward of the government apparatus. What do you think of that? And, and are there other career paths that you have identified that you think people should be considering as they worry about the same things you're worrying about? Yeah, I think apart from civil services, you know, working at think tanks seems also plausible. And if you are particularly interested in you know, the development of emerging technologies, like the examples that I have given, then it seems that there are some relevant EA organizations that would be interested. So FHI would be one example. And I think doing some independent research could also be somewhat useful, especially if we are still kind of in a stage of disentangling the space and see what are some of the most promising topics to focus on. What effect do you think climate change has on the risk of great power conflict? I think that one scenario that I'm worried about would be geoengineering. So geoengineering is like a plan B for dealing with climate change. And I think that there is a decent amount of chance that the world wouldn't be able to put together uh, in dealing with climate change in time. So in that case, um, we would need to figure out a mechanism in which countries can cooperate and govern the deployment of geoengineering. Um, so one example would be, you know, China and India are geographically very close. And if one of them decide to deploy the geoengineering technologies, and that would just affect the climatic interest of another one. So disagreement and conflict between these two countries could be quite catastrophic. This is probably a good time to mention your office hours because there's a lot of questions here and we will not be able to get to them all. Uh, your office hours will be at 4.30 today, is that Yeah, right? and there's also a meetup precisely on this topic at 3.30 to 4.30. So 3.30 and 4.30. That's right. And that should be in the program uh, in terms of the location. But to keep going through questions as much as we can, uh, what do you think the role in the future will be for international organizations like the UN and, and other kind of similar international organizations? Are they too slow to be effective, or do you think they have an important role to play? Yeah, I am a little bit skeptical about the roles of these international organizations, especially because of two reasons. One is that these emerging technologies uh, are being developed very quickly. And so if you look at AI, I think that nonprofits and civil society initiatives and firms uh, would be able to respond to these changes much more quickly uh, instead of just going through all the bureaucracy of UN, for example. Another, it seems that, you know, historically, 
nuclear weapons and bioweapons were mostly driven by the development of countries, but with AI and possibly with you know, space mining, perhaps with gene editing, uh, private firms are going to play a significant role. So I think I would be keen to explore other models, such as multi-stakeholder models, firm-to-firm or lab-to-lab -lab collaboration, uh, and also possibly kind of the role of epistemic communities, so between researchers in different countries and just get them to be in the same room and agree with a set of principles. So an example was you know, the Asoma principles to regulate biotechnology 30 years ago, and now you know, we have an emerging discourse and consensus around Asoma conference on AI and you know, partnership on AI. So I think people should explore these governance models in the future as well. Those kind of specific shared understandings kind of relate to the next question, which is uh, somebody points out that seemingly an important factor in the European peace since World War II has been a sense of European identity yeah. and kind of a shared commitment to that. Do you think that it is possible or desirable to create a global sense of identity that everyone can belong to? Yeah, this is quite complicated. I think that I think that there are two pieces to it. One is the creation of a global governance model might exacerbate the risk of you know global permanent totalitarianism. So that's a downside that people should be aware of. But at the same time, there are benefits of a global governance in terms of just a better cooperation and security. Um, that seems to be really necessary for regulating, you know, the development of synthetic biology. So, so you know, a more widespread use of surveillance might be necessary in the future, and, and people should not disregard this possibility. So I'm pretty uncertain about what's the trade-off there, um, but people should be, you know, aware of these trade-offs and keep doing research on this. So probably the last question we'll have time for uh, right now, but again, 3.30 for, for a meetup and 4.30 for office hours. You can get more time uh, with Brian and ask additional questions. But what is your kind of vision for success, the most likely scenario in which global uh, great power conflict is avoided? Is that just kind of managing the current status quo effectively, or does it really require a sort of new paradigm or a new world order to take shape? Yeah, I guess I am hopeful for cooperation based on a consensus on the future of a world of abundance. So I think that a lot of the framework that went into my presentation was around regulating and minimizing the downside risk. But I think it's possible to foster international cooperation around the positive future. You know, just, just look at how much good we can create with safe and beneficial AI, you know, we can potentially have universal basic income. If we cooperate on space mining, then we can go to the space and just have amazing resources uh, in the cosmos. And I think that if people have an emerging view on the huge benefits of cooperation and just the irrationality of conflict, then it's possible to see a pretty bright future. Yeah, well, we certainly hope for that. By the size of the crowd here and the number of questions that we've received, I know that you're hitting on a topic that is really resonant with uh, a lot of EAs. So thank you for bringing it to us. How about a round of applause for Brian Say?
Thank you very much. Good okay. job.